0: Hey, guys, it's Sean, and I'm launching a new podcast called Momentum Minutes. Now, don't worry. What got you there isn't going anywhere. But after talking to countless listeners, the number one thing I kept hearing is you want more wisdom in less time. And that's why I'm launching the Momentum Minutes podcast, so you can hear the most important ideas I'm discovering in about a minute a day. Now, this is going to be the most impactful minute of your day, giving you the fuel, inspiration, and momentum you've been looking for. Now, after spending over five years interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people and reading hundreds of books, I'm distilling down the best ideas and sharing them on this podcast. Think of this like you're sitting down with your wise mentor each day to get their timeless advice. Momentum Minutes is a daily podcast that is now available on all podcasting players, so click the link below or search Momentum Minutes in your favorite podcasting app and hit subscribe. And after listening to a couple episodes, let me know what you think by sending me an email to Sean at what guy you there.com. Today, I sit down with Adrian Fenty, who is the founding managing partner of Mac Venture Capital. And prior to Mac, he was actually a special advisor to Andreessen Horowitz, and he was also the mayor of his hometown, Washington, D.C. So we talk so much about what it takes to succeed in multiple careers, Both politics and investing, what he learned from great investors like Mark Andreessen, what it takes to really build incredible companies and teams, and what the best leaders continually do again and again. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Adrian Fenty. Uh, What got you there? What got got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a -a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads, so you can find everything I just mentioned and more at what got you there.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called you unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now you unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Adrian, welcome to What You There. How are you doing today?
1: Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to dive into this, but I would love to know, because you're someone who's excelled in, in multiple domains, is there a mindset of yours that you've applied across all the things you've done and you think has been incredibly beneficial to your success?
1: You know, I got so many models in the back of my head. Um, you know, probably no shortcuts, just starting... You know, right at the very beginning, uh, not being afraid to fail, um, you know, going door to door, uh, customer is always right, customer service, all those things are kind of true to my life when I was growing up in my dad's retail store. When I made my mark in politics and certainly, uh, trying to, um, trying now to be a successful venture capitalist.
0: Yeah. Talk to me, talk to me about your dad's retail store. What did what did you take away from
1: that? What were you learning in those early days? Man, so much. So my dad opened up, um, uh, well, my parents really, but he was the, he was the first full-time employee he opened up a triathlon store. It was, it's called Fleet Feet Sports Shop. It was the first, um, uh, East Coast franchise. It's a Sacramento originated triathlon store. And uh, he did that when I was in junior high school. So um, you know two things. One, you know there's this there's a saying that you you know you you want to be on the retail floor, which which is both factual if you're working in a running store, a triathlon store, but also metaphoric. and you want to be knowing you want to know the pulse of your customers or your voters, or the startup community. And the only way to do that is by being out amongst them. And I learned that so well um, through uh, through my dad's store, Fleet Feet. The other thing that was key is, so at a very young age, I got the opportunity to sell. So I was you know, 14, 15 years old, I got the opportunity to sell running shoes and triathlon suits and everything else. Um, and that gave me a confidence to to talk to people and to be able to present and articulate and be an expert on things at a very early age that was extremely important in politics and and very ex- extremely important now. My dad once said to me, he said, I couldn't have been more than 15. He said, "You need when people come in here, they are looking to you as the expert." And of course, they were like double my age, and I never forgot that. And so, it's, it's kind of the opposite of kind of the imposter syndrome is you're the expert. And so, when I go into politics, even if I was you know younger than everyone else, you know, it was my job to serve them. And now in venture capital, even though I'm coming out of politics. You know, if I'm talking to my startups, I'm talking to them from a position of authority. And it all stemmed back from kind of that saying, you're the expert. They're looking to you for guidance. Can you even talk to me about that, that,
0: that theme there around courage and that developing courage? I'm thinking about how you earn that courage over time and what does that look like as you progress, as you move forward?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of think about it as, um. You know, there's there's something. I'm, I'm I'm out in Menlo Park right now, and this is where I'm based in Silicon Valley. So there's something out here that's in the water, and it, it really is a you know a, an appetite for failure, it, not being afraid to fail, or almost a courage to, to fail. And it's it's when I first started coming out here in 2012, I immediately knew that 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 mindset and the people who had it in abundance out here were 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 my were my kin these were my people because that's exactly how i have always been certainly in politics i would rather do the right thing exactly as it should be done no matter what the consequences in an election and and when you're not afraid to fail, I think the performance is better. And it kind of goes back again. A lot of my life will go back to to my to my parents. You know, when they started their store, it was after my dad got laid off. You know what I mean? I laid off from his draftsman position, which is you know uh, works in synergy with a with with an architect. And my mom was a was a public school teacher, so she couldn't have been making that much money. And they decided they wanted to open up a triathlon store, which was a crazy idea. Um, and they decided, Hey, we're going to take out a second mortgage and we're going to bet everything on ourselves and bet everything on our community and the running community in Washington, DC. And I, you know, I watched that happen, you know, as a 13, 14 year old, and they made it a success by literally working seven days a week, 10 AM to 8 PM on, on Saturday, on Sunday for 15, 20 years. And so you, so, so that stuck with me, you know, you bet everything on yourself and then you work your tail off to make it happen. And I've done that on a number of occasions and, and, and even though I'm much older now, I I will continue to.
0: Speaking about betting on yourself, uh, the best investment you can make there. are are there negatives to that? Or instead of negatives, I'm wondering, are there times where you got, you got so close to questioning that inner belief around, should you keep proceeding here with how you're betting on yourself? Has there ever been times like that?
1: (laughs) For sure. You know, (laughs) for sure there are. So, I mean, so when I, when I started in politics, I'll just give a little bit of background. So I was, um, you know, I, I, I was a law school graduate. I had done a little bit of work in law firms. I was 28 years old or so. I I, I nailed a job working on the city council, which is a long longer story. Uh, as an attorney, and uh, and my wife at the time, I had and I had bought a house, and so I started getting active in the community, and. Um, and and I decided that the person who was in office in in the ward that we that that we lived in in Washington D.C. had just been there too long. The 21 years she had been there is is too long. We need. I, I felt like we needed new blood in politics, and the city would only be as successful as you know young, energetic people who got involved. So I I asked people, you know, whether they would whether they were going to. To run and no one would run against her because she was too powerful and too famous and had too much money. And I just remember as distinctly as it was yest- as it was yesterday, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not gonna be able to sleep with myself if I don't run against her. And was, no money. Uh, my wife was pregnant with twins. Uh I was, I was, I had a pretty good job. I was a lawyer for the city council, you know, at the time, making decent money. But I just said to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to sleep with myself if I don't if I don't quit this job and resign and run for the city council. And I remember when it got announced that I did, I remember walking into the elevator in City Hall because I was still an attorney at the city council. I remember some very high-ranking members of the mayor getting off the elevator and literally laughing in my face because I was such a long shot to run. And instead of like beginning getting more scared or anything i made that motivate me and you can tell how much it motivates me because that was 19 that was 1999 and now it's 2022 and i still remember them laughing in my face and it has driven me every minute of every day and right up until now
0: i I don't even know if you can clearly answer this but but i'm curious about the moment where you said, you know what, I I can't go on unless I do this. And I'm just wondering, like, talk to me about that feeling of like how you even believed that you could do it and why you like, where does that stem from?
1: There's so many different parts to, to this answers to this question. So, so, you know, starting out, I was a political junkie. I was like that kid in 11th grade who looked at the, the, the list of all the presidents and saw that they were attorneys and decided, okay, I've got to go to law school because I love politics. I want to get into it. You know, um, my parents um, were were legitimate hippies. Like they legitimately marched in the poor people's move, movement campaigns and the women's liberation movements and civil rights and were card carrying members of the Black Panthers. I mean, they are legitimate Washington, D.C., march on Washington hippies. And they they instilled in my brothers and I not really by like preaching to us or anything, but just by the way they kind of lived their lives that you have to get involved, that that you don't have the right to be in society without getting involved. Um, and then and then, like I said, I had you know I had a, a law degree, I'd accomplished you know no one in my Family had gone to law school. People had gone to undergrad, so I was starting to accomplish some things. So if you, if you kind of combine my love of politics, my my parents, you know, kind of showing us the way of being, you know, civically involved, and then I start to accomplish some things. And I told you, you know, I worked on the my dad's retail floor as a kid. All of that gave me enough confidence that I could figure it out, and and then I said to myself. this is what I believe so Bobby Kennedy has a has a phrase which says which says you can't you can't make up on the end of a campaign you can't make up time on the end of your campaign or something like that it's a paraphrase it's an obvious point but what he's really saying is you have no time to waste Mm -hmm. and so I said to myself I don't care whether I win or lose at the end of this campaign the one thing I'm not going to do is have any regrets that I didn't work my tail off and the kennedys also had another uh mantra for politics their philosophy was they were going to make the campaign into an athletic event meaning they were going to tire out their opponents and by this time you know i had run marathons i had grown up in a triathlon store endurance was no problem so when someone told me that the way to win an election was to go door to door. Like I took it literally. And I literally knocked on every door. I would knock on doors where we knew it was a registered Republican, even though I was a Democrat. We would knock on doors where I knew people weren't even registered to vote. I would knock on doors in D.C. where people were like ambassadors, where they got, you know, they voted in their own country because I knew that I had to outwork my opponent. I had no name recognition. Um, so so all those all those things gave me confidence I, I could outwork them. And then like I said, you know, as long as I had busted my tail and did everything possible, I wasn't afraid to fail. Um and I'd be able to live with myself for the rest of my life. Yeah. But luckily I
0: you're hitting on one of those triads here of sustained success, right? Like you've got that deep rooted passion essential because that's going to keep fueling you. You're, you're laying out those excellent models. You had those mentors, the parents who, who instilled some of those things. And then through that tenacity, that persistence, that earned confidence just compounds over time. Uh, I, I just think it's a really important thing to understand that conceptual framework in terms of what led to sustained excellence for you. Obviously there there's many details within that, but those are some of the broad themes. Talk to me about the connection between the athletic endeavors and then that mind-body connection in terms of what you do day to day. Clearly, you're still very fit. I'm just wondering how you think about mental performance in addition to physical performance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did uh, I did a three mile run this morning in, in prepar- this That was my preparation for your podcast. You know what I mean? I wanted my mind to be clear and to have already accomplished something and to have great energy. And so, I mean, I I try to work out every morning, but I I, I feel like that's that's the best the best way to kind of clear your mind when, when i was when i was mayor i was the pressure was so strong um that i would work out twice a day i would wake up at six before i would take my my sons to school and and do basically like an hour run and then i would drop my kids off at school and then i would go work three or four hours and then i would go do like a 30 40 mile bike and i by by lunchtime i would need to reset for 4 years i, I was the mayor for 4 years i never took a business lunch i always would work out and lunch instead and it was the best way to reset and to and to and to not have the pressure weigh on me too heavily and to be honest with you it really it really puts you in a great mindset to make decisions because two things one your mind is working Subconsciously, when you work out, um, and two, it helps to structure your day better. If I if I had worked from six a.m. to eight p.m. without any breaks for working out, I, as they as they teach you in economics, I would have had diminishing marginal returns early. But by having those breaks, I stayed sharp, energetic, and I, I feel like I was a better decision maker and a and a better leader because of it. And that continues to today. I, I I still work out at least once a day. Um, and uh, and when I was in office and now as a venture capitalist, I it's great i I run with a couple of my young founders and try my best to uh, to not let them beat me, even though I may be twice their age. Um, so, it's, so that's fun.
0: Can you dive into just the pressure you're under? I feel like few people probably get to experience what that's like. And I'm just wondering not only what that's like, but then besides working out, how do you handle that day-to-day? Because that's an all-consuming thing.
1: Just just the whole day pressure, the workout?
0: Just the pressure, yeah.
1: Well, well you you use something on your show, and and your good friend David Senra uses this on his show, on his podcast a lot. This is – I've always believed this. If you love what you do, you'll do it all day, mm-hmm. right? And other people have said this a million different ways. And so, from the very beginning, you know, I've loved everything. I love working in my dad's retail store, you know, so much. I would I would work out and then work there ten a.m. to eight p.m. And I did that right up until I went to college. Even when I was in college, you know, I loved you know politics. I did it for for ten ten years. I was an elected official. Six years as a city council. Member in one one term as one four year term as mayor, I loved every bit about it. There wasn't an aspect of it, so it wasn't like work. It was like I couldn't be more excited after I dropped all my kids to go into work and make decisions and hire great people and and fix things and make the city I grew up in, you know, the most fantastic city it could be. And now I, I just couldn't feel any luckier because I, I'm you know I've gotten to be you know I've, I've essentially been in venture capital for for 10 or 11 years now, first working for four and a half years at Andreessen Horowitz and then now for about six, six and a half years uh, having my own fund. And this is such an exciting time and place to be in. And I love it. And I and so I feel very lucky that I have another job which doesn't feel like a job. And so, yes, there's pressure in all of it. We have, you know, we have pressure now to, perf- to deliver for our investors. Our investor put, you know, at this point hundreds of million dollars into our fund and we have to now convert that into you know, a billion or a couple billion dollars so there's great pressure but when you love what you do it it diminishes the pressure and it's exciting mm. and, and that's that's very true of mo- most if not all the jobs i've had yeah i was talking to someone
0: yesterday a friend who works on wall street and he was saying it's like every day i've got this boulder on my back and i'm trying to push this thing up the hill but he's like I kind of freaking love just pushing this boulder up the hill. And it's just like, yeah, like it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. But like, for some reason, there's that deep satisfaction. Probably what you experienced during a long run, swim or something like that. There's a there's a deeper level of satisfaction you get out of it. I'm intrigued, though. Uh, you, you mentioned the Kennedy line basically having no wasted time. Talk to me about the transition then. And I'm wondering what the early days were like for you when you switch over to investing. I'm assuming you were not
1: trying to waste much time there to get up to speed. It's a great question. So, all right. So, so from 2007 to 2011, I was mayor of Washington, DC, where I had an, I had an $11 billion operating budget, meaning I've spent $11 billion a year. I had 33,000 employees. You know, um, I was, you know, it's a strong mayor format. So I hired police chief, fire chief, um, everything and i took over the school system which is a whole other story so we had the school system reporting to me and the state education the the, dc is the only city state in the entire world actually so i was both governor and mayor we had a department of motor vehicles a department of health i say all this to say you know after four years there i really knew a lot about management and hiring managers and making tough decisions, and measuring three times, cutting once, and knowing if there's smoke, there's got to be fire, and crisis management out the wazoo. And when I came to Silicon Valley, and when I sat in Deal Review at Andreessen Horowitz, so many things were going over my head. It was making my head spin. I was like, wait. I thought I knew management. I thought I knew leadership. I thought I knew moving fast. I I realized I was at the very very beginning and um uh, it's you know it's there was there are a couple of things that, that still stand out I'll tell you two of them one I mean we would you know we would hear a pitch on a Monday or a Tuesday right and yes no one did better diligence than than energy in Horwitz but essentially we could make a decision or know that we were going to make a decision, within a few days, let alone a week, to spend millions of dollars. And, and it wasn't just us. This is, this is how Silicon Valley works. And and a lot of these decisions, by the way, are were companies where I got the chance to sit in like Coinbase, Oculus, Lyft, decisions that were right. So I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen people make decisions this fast. And I and it was one of the times I knew this was for me. But but when I knew, but when I was drinking out of the fire hose, was there's managing a thirty three thousand employee op- organization with eleven billion dollars that's already been established and been around for decades is quite different than knowing how to grow a company from five employees, which I think. I think when we when we invested in Lyft, they had 15 employees. It was just one site. They were just in one city, San Francisco, right? And growing that to what it became, you know, thousands and thousands of employees in every city and state in the country. Knowing how to do that is quite different than what I was doing as a as a manager in government. And so I I was very humbled and knew I had to learn that. But the saving grace was this. So When I was in politics, when I first got elected mayor, um, one of my quote unquote mentors was was Michael Bloomberg. He was in a second term as uh, as mayor of New York City. He was instrumental in helping us architect our takeover of the D.C. school system, similar to what he had done in, in New York City. And when you first get elected to anything or get a new position, everybody has advice. I had so much advice when I won the primary, like my head was spinning. And I remember going to New York and sitting with the mayor in his bullpen. Um, and he was like, how, how can I help Fenty? And I said, and I think it was just he and I, I said, listen, I need some advice because I'm getting all this advice and I don't know which way to go. You, I want you to tell me very succinctly how I can make my city, Washington, D.C., the, the the best city in the world. Or or whatever whatever I said I would have said something similar to that, and he looked at me and I think he said four words he said three words hire great people, and that literally and it essentially was the end of the conversation, and and that is a, that is what I did for four years and we hired people who took the city and put the city on a rocket and did amazing things which I'd be excited to to talk about or people have written about. So then fast forward to 2012. I'm in deal review at Andreessen Horwitz. Again, stuff was flying over my head. I'm drinking out of the fire hose. We're looking at a deal. I don't remember which one it was. Everybody is debating back and forth. You know, should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? All these different reasons. Everybody had agreed it was a great team. And I I remember Mark saying to the whole group, he said, listen, we invest in great people that is our mantra and and essentially what you're saying is you know there's lots of reasons why this could work there's lots of reasons why this could fail but this is a great team and this is why i recommend we invest and that link between what mayor bloomberg had said to me in 2006 and what mark andreessen was telling the firm in 2012 at that point i realized okay i can do this i know about hiring great people I, if there's one thing I can do, it's it's be a, a, a talent scout. And for and now it's ten years later, and to this day, that's how I run most of my investment decisions is looking for those unicorn people who we can get behind and invest in.
0: Adrian, come on, like entertain me here when you're finding a unicorn person. Like just just give me into into. Not just like the the obvious traits. I want to know like some of those little things going on in the back of your head, and and I'll, I'll tee this up. So what I mean by this is Danny Meyer, the great restaurateur. This is just an example I love. He's got a framework he uses called the Excellence Reflex. So working in retail or uh, in the restaurants, right? No one looks down. Why? Because you got wrappers down there. You got trash. So someone with the Excellence Reflex, they're going to look down. They're going to see that little pink sweet and low wrapper, and they're going to pick it up. They're going to leave that place better. Small thing. They're just going to slightly push that chair in because they can make something a little bit better. So he looks for that, and I'm just wondering what. What are the subtle cues you're looking for that are non-obvious that sets you apart in terms of selecting great talent?
1: Yeah, in investing in entrepreneurship, particularly in, in in tech, what I look for most is someone who can paint, who has a vision for the future, who has a vision of where their particular vertical is going. So, you know, if it's you know, if it's enterprise software for uh for a a cryptocurrency or, or or blockchain company they can paint a picture of where they want to build for six months for 18 months for five years and how the whole industry will shape up and then and so that's i think the more tangible thing right but it's very rare because lots of people can execute but not many people are visionaries and you can throw in, you know, an Elon Musk or someone in that is kind of the super prototype. The other thing, which is a little bit harder to convince you, of, but you can kind of get it by talking to people and reading, is they have to convince you that they have the ability to execute on, on that vision and that vision for the future. Uh, And so you get that by talking to, you actually get that first of all, by like whoever sent you the deal because that person probably has known them for some time. Uh, You get that by talking to their peers and you get that by all kinds of references. But those are, I think, kind of the two ingredients. Really having an amazing vision for the future, usually that no one else has, and two, being wildly convincing that they are an A-plus executor and they'll be able to uh, to follow through on that vision.
0: Yeah. How rare is that elite combo? They've got the vision, but they can also execute. If you're looking at, a, let's call it a hundred founders, what percentage of them have that, had that dynamic duo there?
1: Well, wow. you know what, you know what I want to just pause and say to the, to answer that question. It, sometimes I, I, sometimes I look at all the deals we're looking at. And we can, we can look at like, we can literally look at like a thousand deals a year, right? A thousand deals that we take a good hard look at. The amazing thing is like almost all of the companies are pretty incredible. Like they're all like gonna make some money and they're going to be somewhat successful, and people are working around the clock to build them. And out of that a thousand, you know, we'll invest in like 15 or 20, right? Which means we are turning down good, great, sometimes very great companies. So it's very rare to find that person that has that vision for the future. They can literally kind of paint the future if you will. That they they convince you that they are someone who is can make tough decisions and hire great people and be a great executor. And then there's a lot of other intangibles. It's got to be a big market. It's got to be big enough that we think it can be a billion dollar company because startups are tough and they may fail. Um so rare we We pass on a lot of great founders and a lot of great companies, but I think that's the only way to be great yourself is 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 to only to only kind of um, accept what is very amazing.
0: So so this has me intrigued. You were talking about the the early days with Andreessen Horowitz, and and your mind was spinning at how quickly they could process information, make decisions. You just said a second ago, you might look at 1,000 companies per year. You're only investing in 15. So I'm wondering at those early days with Andreessen, what is going on behind the scenes so that you guys feel you can have the conviction in the bet you're going to make, right? Like even in in those timelines and the amount of information you're taking on, I guess, how do you weigh through complexity there?
1: Yeah. Well, let me say a couple of things. One, I became really uh, aware that this just wasn't an adjacent horse. This was this was my friend Joe Lonsdale at, at, at Formation 8 and now 8 BC. This was other people I was meeting in the Valley in 2012 and 2013. Everybody had this mindset that you have to move fast, that, that you have to make thorough but very quick decisions. And again, this was this was the way I kind of ran the government when, when I was mayor, it was the way I tried to push the government to be run when I was a a city council member. I I believe in, in, in excellence and, and and fast paced decision-making anyway. So, um, so what you're talking about, so, so, so that's kind of a mindset, but then what goes into making great decisions? Well, What you'll find, what what Andreessen did very well was they kind of institutionalized, I think, a lot of the types of decisions that have been being made in Silicon Valley for a while. One, investing in very technical teams. So you want to have a a technical founder, a technical team who knows engineering, usually software, because that will allow you to build a company fast and that will allow you to build a moat. So it will be defensive so that people will not be able to come in and easily copy it. That's one. Two, right around the time when I was coming into Silicon Valley, a lot of the funds, including Andreessen, were really becoming much more adamant that that you wanted to invest in founders who would run the company uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, So a a Zuckerberg is is a super prototype, of course. So um, in the past, like, say, 15, 20 years before in, in the Valley venture capitalists would invest And then after a company hit scale, they would bring in kind of a professional CEO. Well, our firm, Andreessen at the time, and and others led the charge to change that, to really give the the founder, CEO, and the founding team all the resources they need, be it marketing, sales, anything else, uh, hiring help they need so that they could run the company. When the founder is running the company, going back to our other point, then you keep that vision for the future in the company for the whole time. And there are other things. Um, you know, It helps to have companies that are near your geographic base, uh, et cetera. Uh, but those are some of the, the key things that, that, that people were looking for uh, then. And it's it's kind of what I use now as kind of my litmus test. We, I want to invest in a techno t- technical founding team that has a high degree of engineering. That's going to hire a lot of engineers. Uh, and certainly, we want to be super, super founder-friendly. Yeah.
0: So speaking about being super founder-friendly, what what are the biggest obstacles and challenges they're facing that you can have the most dramatic impact with early on? So I, I'm asking this because there's a lot of founders and startup companies that listen to the show. And so I, I want to help them understand and navigate the complexities and problems they might be facing as they're scaling that company.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've So I told you, like, my my parents opened up the first East Coast franchise of a running store called Fleet Feet. So, so I was very familiar with the franchise model. And I remember so many times in the first five years of our business where my mom and dad would have to kind of, would be caught and stuck in something. Maybe they ordered too much inventory and they needed someone to tell them, get rid of inventory fast. Cause you don't want to have it sitting on your shelves, you know, even if you have to discount it. So the, so the, so the franchise was a was a part of the family. they were they were they were taking on the role of of being an expert who could give advice where needed. And the venture capitalist is very similar to that. So so to answer your question, so we'll invest in very early companies. Most of our companies have five or less people. The valuations are usually you know twenty five million dollars or less. They've only been around sometimes six to eighteen months. So very early. So sometimes, like the very first thing we're helping on, we'll make a commitment to invest, and then we'll help them. We'll connect them to other investors, so we'll finish the round. And then once we do that, we'll we'll sit down with them and figure out, okay, how do we do a press release and and make an announcement that we have this new company that's been funded, okay? And then after we do that, well, we've got the money now. How do we go about figuring out who we're going to hire? And we may have specific people who we know that are looking to join great companies or we certainly know recruiters and we'll connect them to them and then and then they have a sales pipeline but we want to add to that so we know people at Fortune 500 companies or governments or what have you so we can introduce them that to build a sales pipeline and then there's lots of others and then in 18 months they'll go up for more fundraising and then we have to start start the whole process over again so it's very much similar to kind of like that franchise model that I knew as a kid working in my parents' running store where you're not day to day, but you really can be helpful on almost every aspect of the business, particularly when uh, it's, there, there could be some kind of crisis or burgeoning crisis happening.
0: Yeah, it's funny how some of those those early influences, how how, how they really come to, to influence you and impact what you're doing day to day, years and years later. Th- this has me thinking then about what you're doing at Mac Ventures. What are you looking for in people you're actually trying to add to your team? Because that's a, a different thing than what you're looking for when you're investing in a certain founder. So I'm just curious what you look for there.
1: Our, our Mac team? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's okay. So I mean, I'm lucky enough. So we've got a great founding Team. And the, the one of the reasons why I say that is because we've got three GPs who m- myself, Mike Palink, and Marlon Nichols, who all have experience investing before Mac, but we're three, we're very different. So I think we all are looking at early stage technology startups, but we we all come from it from different backgrounds. And so we end up looking at like different deals, which is actually really exciting and makes us a better firm. And so what we've done. And adding our adding our team is to actually find other people who have strengths that we may not have had. like we ha- we hired a young woman, Haley Farnsworth, who worked in enterprise sales at uh, at um, um, Snowflake. So that gives us really an ability to talk to people about enterprise sales. We hired another woman who um, uh, Jenny Liu, who has great consumer investing experience uh, and had done a lot of work before. And on and on goes. So we just keep building our team to bring in parts of venture capital investing that we may not already have. And and now we're probably gonna make a couple more hires in, in that way.
0: Your hiring process is it usually pretty quick in terms of the same thing that you would do with investments, or is it more of a drawn-out
1: process? Um, it can be it can be either. So in, in, in investing, you have to make quick decisions. Mm-hmm. But but I want to I want to say the whole process of finding an amazing company is not fast. Yeah, like, exactly. and I mean this. Like, like we just invested in a company called Fursure. Okay, CEO is Catherine Denning. She worked at Facebook before. I recently have been introduced to her, but I was introduced to her uh, by a gentleman, Howard Okumia, who we invested in back in 2018. He subsequently sold his company uh, to Spotify. Very successful exit for him very successful exit for us. He was very impressed with the work we had done, helping him and and, and getting his company to scale. And so he then, and he's made, he's made other introductions to us. He introduced us to Catherine again, uh, I guess it was about six or eight weeks ago, and we made the decision to invest within, say, 10 to 14 days. Um, but if you think about it, We have been working on getting that introduction to Catherine since 2018. If we had not done a good, if we had not first of all found Howard through our other friend Aviciu Gar, who's you know a Silicon Valley stalwart, he introduced Howard. If we had not worked well with Howard and his company and done a good job, and also helped out some other people, he never would have introduced us. So even though we make fast decisions, getting to the point of 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 having great deal flow or great companies introduced to you. Is building your entrepreneur network over lots of years, and I learned that at Andreessen, because I what I what I could tell was that some of the companies we were being introduced to in 2012 and 2013 were people who were who Mark and Ben had known from Opsware and Loudcloud and Netscape, which goes back like 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so, and so I think sometimes people look at like Silicon Valley and think, yeah, you know, you're moving fast, break things, the old Facebook thing. Well, in actuality, you know, you're, you're making fast decisions, but you're measuring three time cutting once. And these decisions have been building for years to come. Yeah,
0: That's such an important, vital, and and incredible point there. Yeah. Because from the outside, it could look like, what are you talking about? You just, you just met this founder two weeks ago, but no, 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 it's, it's years in the making. It's like, right. When, when preparation, preparation meets opportunity there, uh, this has me intrigued. You you seem to identify certain behavior, certain traits in, in other people, and you've brought up a few incredible leaders. What else have you seen uh, from the incredible leaders you've been around that have just deeply resonated with you and stuck with you?
1: Wow, there's a lot of answers. I talked about Mark. I talked about Mayor Bloomberg. You know, you know. I it that I'll I'll just talk about one that comes to to mind. You know, um, so I when I was in office when I was in public, so I, I, so I was so there. So school systems in in this country are run by school boards, which usually is not a good thing, particularly in inner cities where there's a dearth of issues that affect um, poor kids in the community who need a great education. Meaning, it could be everything from substance abuse, mental health, jobs, crime, you name it in their neighborhoods, lots of obstacles. So you need a school system that's nimble, decisive aggressive, and forward-thinking. And when you have a school board, you don't have that. As Michael Bloomberg and Joel Klein, his school's chancellor, famously said to me, you can't have nine people running an organization, right? You have to have one person in charge. And that is what they they told me when they convinced me to take over the school system. So in 2007, Washington, D.C. became only a third jurisdiction pretty, pretty much in the history of the world because there's only elected school systems in the Western Hemisphere. And in, in this country, there's only been three times where a mayor has ever taken over a school system. Richard Daly in Chicago, Michael Bloomberg in New York. And then we did it in 2007 uh, in my first year in office. So so I had the opportunity to. Not only to take over the school system, but to hire the first ever chancellor of the District of Columbia public schools. Right. So, I went to Joel Klein again. He's the famous uh, former chancellor of the New York City public schools, Michael Bloomberg's first chancellor. And I said, Joel, okay, you guys got me into this. Now you got to help me find a chancellor. So he says to me, "Okay, Fenty, give me a little while. I'll come back and uh, and 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 make you some recommendations." Calls me back a couple weeks later, and he says. I've I've I, I I've gotten a look at the at your short list of candidates, which was a little shocking to me because I hadn't even seen the short list of candidates. <laughs> right. And it says it says two of them are amazing. Uh, he said one of them. Will be great. And is a safer choice. Um, but he'll do a great job running, running your school system, he said, the other one. Is going to make life very uncomfortable for you, but will move your school system forward faster than anybody else on the list. And I said, I want to meet her. That's the person I want to meet. And so he introduced me to Michelle Ree, uh, who was running uh, another organization like Teach for America in, in Colorado at the time. I didn't know her. I was I am I was not an education expert. I was a, an, I was a community expert. I believe that. We should have the best schools in the world in Washington D.C., and that—that that was that was the the goal I was I was I was setting setting us out for. And so he introduced me. She came down to D.C. I made I uh, I got a chance to meet her. She established, uh, I said, um, and she said to me, she said, uh, Mayor, uh, you're I'm not the type of person you want to hire. I was like, oh, that's an interesting way sure. to study to get a job. <laughs> What do you mean? She said, I am going to make life very uncomfortable for you. She said, she said, and I looked at her and she probably said some other things and she probably gave me some specific. And I said to her, as long as every decision you make is in the best interest of our kids, you will have my 100 percent support. And she said, and then she said to me, and I think she actually went back to Colorado. She came back a second time. Uh, and she had one more interview, and she said, she said, "I remember this is the end of the interview. She said, "How much are you willing to risk?" And I literally answered in one word. I said, everything. And that was that was to me, I said this in speeches, et cetera. I said that was an example to me of showing leadership almost from an employee perspective. She told she what she was saying to me is, she was not going to take this job if i was not going to put all of my political weight behind the job um and so that it was an example of leadership that i i do i do think about all the time and in fact i've been having some conversations with a couple of my founders you know this this week about kind of integrity and we always have conversations about backing their employees and showing them, you know, the support and all of that was kind of, you know, I got a lot of learnings from that uh, one example.
0: Can you dive a little bit further into the conversations around integrity? Uh, I'm just wondering like what the latest conversations are like within the the climate we're at uh, with startup founders around integrity.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, most of them are like this. Most of them are, are you're the ceo right and when the company is young you have to kind of do all the jobs right but as you grow the company you want to transition from doing all the jobs as fast as you can to to delegating and 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 finding and to delegate to other people and so part of a large part of that is it's just having the trust to hire amazing people and allow them to to do the job you hired them to do. So the, the the first mistake is hiring people who aren't good enough. Because if you don't hire people who are an A plus, then you're going to just end up doing the job yourself. So you may as well not have hired anybody because you've you're you've actually created a problem, created more problems than you had before. So you've got to hire an A plus person. And then once you hire that A plus person, you have to be comfortable delegating to them. Uh, the responsibilities that they know uh, how to do. And most of our founders, to be honest with you, part of being the great visionary founder that we talked about before is knowing how to hire great people. One of the things that we are a great sounding board on sometimes. I'd say like at least ten percent of our companies have founder splits, mm-hmm. which I think is, is natural, you know Human beings don't always get along in the long run. So we, but most of them, they end up working out and they work out because those founders who are great visionaries and great executors are also great at picking co-founders and hiring great people.
0: Yeah, I, I'm wondering then, I mean, you do a great job selecting excellent people to fill in the blind spots, the gaps that you have. But but what are the, the different mindsets, let's call it, that you can have the most talented person in the world, but you just can't impart on them, right? It's almost like this, this intuitive understanding you have, is there anything like that that you've come across?
1: Um, so more often than not, you'll hire somebody who you think is amazing and then they don't turn out to be an A plus. That's more often than not what happens. Um, but yeah, I, I, and there are very obvious things that happen where people need to be moved around where you hire them for one position and they're not good enough and you put them in another position. If someone's truly amazing, I mean, I, I, when I was, I developed kind of like this, this, this kind of three prong formula for knowing whether, you know, someone was, was a great employee. It was like, one, are, are they loyal to be honest, (laughs) That was number one, right? Two, are they a hard worker? Meaning will they literally, you know, bust their tail from morning to evening. And the third one is, are they great at what they do? Right? So the first is an intangible. If you're not loyal to the CEO, to the company, you it, there's no role for you in the, in the company. I don't care how good uh, or talented you are. Number two is good too. So if you're loyal and hardworking, I always thought there will be a position for you. If you, if you can outwork everybody and you're more loyal than everyone. And then it's that that third prong, which is the actual superstars, where if you're both super loyal, will outwork everybody, and you're amazing at what you do, then I tell tell my founders and CEOs, do not nickel and dime this person. (laughs) Do, Do not be penny wise and pound foolish. These are the people who are going to help you grow the company. And in an early stage startup, that means even though you don't have a lot of money, you, you find enough money and you probably find enough equity and you give it to that person because you want them to be around for a while. And so those Jesus. are the kind of conversations I have usually a couple of times a week with founders. What about your
0: personal evolution? You mentioned those those early few years, just the amount of information that, that you're learning from. I'm wondering more, let's call it the last three years. What, what have you yeah. evolved on? What what is, what is different now than if I was talking to you in, in 2019?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to answer that, but I want to answer one other thing too that I think is important. So when I was in Jerusalem, I was not on the front lines. I, I was—they I, hired me as a senior advisor because I had a lot of government, regulatory, and political experience. So for companies like Lyft and Airbnb, I could be really helpful as they went to market and understanding how to negotiate with city councils and state governments and things like this. And then, you know, I was lucky enough that they let me go to lots of meetings and learn, learn, learn for four and a half years. And so I learned all the principles of of what you should do as a venture capitalist and how you should make decisions, uh, what you should do, how you should make decisions. But what I didn't, what I what I wasn't able to do, I didn't have that frontline experience as an investor. So when I started my fund in 2017, all the way until today, to, to 2022, I have been kind of putting meat on the bones of what I learned there. And, and this, I think, applies to almost everything. You know what I mean? I think it applies to sports, government, traditional business, and certainly early stage venture capital, you can learn in theory what you should do, but until you're really on the front lines, it doesn't hit home in the same way. So the last six years, and then that certainly includes 2019 to now, when we've had kind of a a fun where we've led deals at at Mac, I've I've been flushing out those ideas that I've been learning from 2012. And- and and you learn them stronger or better or faster or they me, they mean they mean even more. Almost like you know if you're like if you're like on a basketball team you know you're on the bench and or you in college and it looks like it but once you get on the court as a starter or you get into the pros that's when you really understand. Okay, that's why the coach was telling me that. Now I really understand why I've got to like you know what I mean hold my position and then and then flash to the three-point line and, and and get the shot anyway
0: yeah yeah there's there's a difference between reading about a four four forty on a piece of paper and then uh <laughs> having to play defense yeah. on that well this this has me intrigued then actually with the founders and the companies you worked with right you, you said that there needs to be that lived experience so i'm, I'm sure you have plenty of founders they, they pick up a book like zero to one right they're like i know i know teal's playbook I, I know what to do here and and everything like that how do you give them the freedom and flexibility to earn that lived experience, well, what I'm saying here is there's going to be certain mistakes they basically have to go through to understand that. And just how do you navigate that
1: as an investor? Wow, that's a great question. So yeah, so this is almost like so. I'm I'm a parent of three great kids, um, and so and but I know a lot of venture capitalists who are great at investing probably don't have kids. But I relate this a little bit to to being a parent. Um, Uh, in this way like you you want to be hands-on you know you want to you want to help your kids understand what they're supposed to do in life and education sports whatever but you also want to let them make the mistakes because if you start to do too much for them they actually won't learn as fast and they won't learn as well so I think other people understand this intuitively and innately and, and they're great venture capitalists and and I do as well but I also relate it to to being a parent and so that's how I that's how I approach it like I want my founders to know they can call text or whatsapp me anytime for anything and most of them do most of them will text or whatsapp me cuz I'm very fast I became very fast uh, at responding to people when I was in, when I was a young elected official Um, But I also don't overboard and do everything for them, Um, whether it's fundraising, whether it's hiring, because one, I think they will be a better CEO as as they do things for themselves. Two, if I have to do everything for you, then the company probably doesn't have much hope of a future anyway. You know what I mean? So continually testing the machine. So that's kind of how I how I think about how we deal with founders and how we're available and ready for them without doing their job.
0: Yeah, Uh, I'm thinking back to your days in politics. There was so much in terms of trying to learn new new things and basically understand how different things were working. What now are you trying to explore at a deeper level and just get a better grasp on because there's so many moving parts in your day to day job
1: so so the one thing that you that you never if you if there's one thing that you have to be maniacal about more than anything you have to be maniacal about a lot of things uh because it's a, a fast-moving industry but there's one thing it's building your entrepreneur network it's that that is the one thing that's critical now building your entrepreneur network isn't just going out and having coffee with people, although that's a large part of it. It's not just going to receptions. It's not just, you know, everything else that may seem like networking. It's it's what we talked about before, doing a very good job for your for your founders, having a great reputation uh in the ecosystem so that other venture capitalists may refer a deal to you. Um, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, these are these are things that that we, that we think about. And, but having an entrepreneur network is almost a great entrepreneur network is almost like 50% of the way towards finding a great company because you have to have a great, you, it has to come from a, someone who knows the person well and not just knows them well, but knows their aptitude well and has a great degree of confidence that they'd be a great founder and CEO before they even send you the deal. Mm. So we spend a lot of time Doing that, in addition to all the other work that supports having a great entrepreneur network. Yeah, I,
0: I don't even know if there's time for you for this personally, based on just your your own schedule. But are there things you're doing outside of your job that you think actually greatly contribute to what you're doing day to day? Listening to podcasts. So, so what? Yeah. So dive into it. What, what like what's your how are you consuming and and what what knowledge are you consuming?
1: I mean, so. So okay so when I was talking about the Kennedys remember no one in my family was in elected politics right no one i i i literally like i had no blueprint so my blueprint was i used to read books about jack kennedy and bobby kennedy i i read books and i read books that would start out how they were you know really young you know boys and they went to like harvard and they learned and how they became like elect- and what i what i realized was I, I realized how they you know ran their campaigns and how they won office and became effective when they did win office. but I also realized that they didn't really know much more than I did when they were first starting out, right So in po- so 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 that was my blueprint. That was as like I said as your friend David Cernan likes to say, that was that was, those were my mentors, right even though I never knew them obviously they were dead before I was even born. And the same thing is true in podcasts. So I'll listen to, you know, a Naval Ravikant or I'll listen. I mean, I worked for Mark and Ben, who are you know, two of the best ever. And, you know, I listen to, you know, uh, you know, I, I listen to y- your podcast and other podcasts and I listen to people who would teach me a couple of things. One, they'll teach me kind of their philosophies on investing, which usually is, you know, hire great people, you know, make sure that you know it's an it's an industry that can grow fast and all the other things that we've talked about here today. Um, but I also listen to how they became venture capitalists and how their decision making has evolved. and 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 so I, I try to let mine evolve from from podcasts and from and from talking to other venture capitalists. i I talk to other venture capitalists all the time. And then I talked to I talked to startup founders all the time. I was gonna I was gonna answer your other another question you had by talking about kind of the ecosystem that exists in the quote unquote Silicon Valley uh, uh, tech world. So what you have, even though like we'll invest in founders who, you know, I've got some founders who were born in two thousands. You know what I mean? So they're literally twenty two and younger. Right, some of them finished college, some of them dropped out. I think got you know founders who never went to college, um, and you wonder, well, how can someone this young not only have a vision for an industry, but actually know how to run a company? And and what's amazing is that there's an ecosystem where these young people um, are a part of that they have been learning how to become an entrepreneur. For years now, so I'll invest in. I'll, I'll just tell you, I like one. We've invested in a, a really brilliant young man named Alex Fine. Alex has been coding, you know, since he was in high school. He's been doing, you know, coding camps and math camps and, and in and starting businesses <laughs> since he was 14 years old. So yeah, he's in his early 20s now. Um, but you know, and he and and he got technically trained in engineering, but he really has, even though he's very young eight or nine years experience he's been thinking about how to be a ceo and a founder and an entrepreneur for a long time and that ecosystem is amazing and now what i think you're finding i'm i'm still based on silicon valley and love working in this ecosystem but you're seeing that the tech ecosystem is growing to other places we've got lots of companies in new york and seattle and texas bec- and, and, and dc actually because people who have been learning from their peers mm-hmm. and coding and thinking about entrepreneurs for years, that's now happening in other places, not just in the Valley.
0: Yeah. The access to information, essentially no excuses, the the, the different people you can connect with, the, the videos you can watch, you can learn from, it's pretty remarkable. Speaking of learning, this will be the, the final one around learning. I'm just wondering, ha- have there been any foundational things you've come across over the years, whether that be even a biography on one of the Kennedys or something like that, or a great talk you've seen that has just really impacted you over the years?
1: Wow. Um, I mean, so many. Let me, I There's so many to start. From. I mean, I was at I was at I was in at Barack Obama's Yes We Can speech. So if you remember the situation, so Barack Obama had won the first primary. He won Vermont narrowly. Um, but it was a it was the it wasn't a true primary. It was the caucus, right? Or Iowa. I, I, it was 2008. I moved. And then we went to New Hampshire and my chief of staff and I were in New Hampshire. And, um, and people thought, okay, we won the first, we're going to be rolling. Right. I was, I was a surrogate for the Obama campaign. And um, Hillary was destroyed. him, Right. Probably not a huge number, but enough where it wasn't close. And I remember walking with my chief of staff and we walked into a restaurant and the Obama finance, some Obama finance people were in there. You never seen people who look more dejected in their life because they thought like, we're going to win New Hampshire and then we're off. Right. And um, and we and we walked into that room and I was like, oh, we got to get out of here. These people are these people are bringing me down so let's go over to the middle school where Obama's gonna make his his speech following the results coming. And again, he had come in second, which normally would be good, but because everybody thought, thought he was win, everyone was was dejected. But we went into the into this into the auditorium, and I remember <laughs> he came out and delivered literally what I thought is the greatest speech he's ever given certainly the greatest speech i've ever heard live and probably after martin Luther king's couple of speeches the greatest speech i've ever heard in my life and it was the yes we can speech and what he what he painted for the entire audience and of course the world was watching was that he was resilient that he was not giving up that this fight was just beginning and he was in it for the long haul and him my chief of staff and i that middle school and the entire country essentially never looked back after that speech. "Will I Am" did a song, a "Yes I Yes We Can" song. It became part of the slogan, and and that's so. That's the that's the greatest speech I've ever heard live, and a very inspirational one. That of course brings us all the way to founders. You know what I mean? Founders very often are taking two steps forward and one step back. But when you take that one step back. You got to realize you got to just be in it for the long haul, and uh, and never give up. Yeah,
0: sounds like Obama, one of those founders, painting a picture of the future he's going to bring you towards. (laughs) It's
1: true. Well, the funny thing is, I've always said the greatest startup actually is a campaign. It looks like a campaign. It looks like I mean, it it looks like a startup because you're all sitting at desks and you have laptops, and that's it. It's just the one floor office, but even more intense than a startup, a campaign has a deadline. (laughs) So you not only have to start something from scratch and build it into like a a well-running organization that has name recognition and lots of money coming in and you win, but you have to do it by a defined time. So yeah, Obama in 2008 was, was, as you said, the ultimate entrepreneur.
0: (laughs) Adrian, this has been a ton of fun for me. If you could do this, Long-form conversation, sit down, interview anyone, dead or alive. Who would you love to just spend an evening asking questions of?
1: I, Martin Luther King, for sure. Martin Luther King, for sure. I'll tell you one story, as a relief. Martin Luther King's, you know, I he's great. You know, his greatest known speech is "I Have a Dream," which is in my home city, Washington D.C. But my favorite Martin Luther King speech is is, I've been to the mountaintop, which was which was given um, the day before he was assassinated. So April 3rd, 1968. (laughs) You got to listen to speech if you haven't listened to it. It's incredible. He goes through he goes he goes through all the times in life where he would where he could have been alive. If someone had allowed him to be alive and he says the only time that I would choose to be alive is this time that I'm living in right now with all the turmoil going on. And he says in this famous phrase, because it is only when you, it is dark outside that you can see the stars. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so then he goes on in the speech to talk about how he has almost been, been killed. He was stabbed. I didn't even know this. And, uh, the doctor said at one point that if he had sneezed because the knife was so close to his heart, he would have died. And he tells a story in the speech about how this young white girl, his words, uh, wrote him a letter that said, I'm so glad you didn't sneeze, which almost makes you cry during the speech. And then he goes on to talk about these famous words, this, the famous part of the speech at the end where he says, I may not get there with you. Right, but we will get to the mountaintop, right? And then, and then there's a real small phrase in that speech, where he says, "Longevity has its place." And so then, when I lost my re-election, which we'll we'll talk about on the next podcast, <laughs> there's a lot of great information in that, and uh, it's humbling and it prepares you. I, I don't believe in career politicians. That's why. I I'm now in private sector, although I'm very involved in my community. But he said longevity has its place. So after I lost my reelection, I called a cabinet meeting and I went to my and I had to say something to my cabinet. And I and everyone was dejected. Everyone was upset. Everyone was. Some were crying. Right. Because we had lost a very close reelection. And I and I talked about this speech. And I talked about what Martin Luther King said this day, which is, you don't be worried about how long something goes. Only be worried about how effective and impactful you are. And so that's what I told my cabinet. I said, longevity has its place. I wasn't in this to be the longest serving mayor in Washington, D.C. history. You weren't in this to be cabinet members forever. We were in this to make a difference as long as we could and as effectively as we could. And so if you ask me who I would put higher than all the other people I'd love to sit down with, it would be someone who on the day before he was assassinated, I obviously he didn't know he was going to be assassinated, but already realized, I think he's 38, maybe even younger, maybe he's even younger than that, 36, already realized that it didn't matter that he that he could teach us, everyone. That it didn't matter how long you did something. It only mattered how much impact and how effective you were at it. Thank you for sharing that.
0: That moved me. That was awesome. So Adrian, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and I, gosh, I'm just glad you answered that final question there. <laughs> um, thanks for
1: asking and thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no, I, I want to make sure the listeners can stay connected with you and everything you've got going on, both personally and at Mac Ventures. Uh, where can we direct their attention?
1: Well, Twitter at, at Twitter, LinkedIn, those are the public uh, places. I'm just at Adrian Fenty. Very easy to find me, and uh, and dot com. I think has all our emails on there.
0: Fantastic. Well, Adrian Fenty, all that will be linked up for the listeners. But I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There,
1: Sean. Thanks for having me.
0: You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.